So if you've got your Bibles, I've always been wanting to say this. Ken says this every Sunday. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them (laughs) to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to be reading out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, a familiar passage of the Old Testament. We're going to look today at the first nine verses. So let's read together the word of the Lord this morning. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your, ho- of your house and on your gates. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the scriptures, your holy word, as we've heard read already from it this morning. We're just grateful, Father, for the instruction we have and that, God, you have not left us to figure out what you want from us and what you expect of us. We thank you for the commands that we find in the scripture, and we thank you in particular for this command to our families. God, our desire is that we would be gospel-centered homes, and I pray this morning through this text that you would speak that clearly into our families to our fathers and our mothers, to our families, grandmothers and grandfathers. Show us, Lord, how we would now guide us. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and pray that in all things that we would hear Christ magnified and glorified in the gospel. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Am I still on the mic here? Okay. Not sure what's going on, but I'm sure I'll figure it out before the day is over. The headset's good? One, two, one, two. Hey, there we go. And whatever that little piece is for. Okay. I am completely in the right frame of mind to preach. Here we go. Hope you guys are as well. Um, what I like to do is I like to just go ahead and start with what is the main point, right? I want to make sure, make sure that we don't miss what is the main point. So we've read our text this morning, the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 6. And so here's the main point. So if you're taking notes, this is what you should take away from it before you leave. It's pretty simple, but it's to love the Lord, the one and only God, with all that we are and with all that we have, and to teach our children to do the same. And the simplified version of that, for those of you who don't take notes that fast, and this would be me, to love God and to teach our children to love God. It's really just that simple. It's very simple to understand. It's a whole lot more difficult to actually practice and live out. But the simplicity of this message is really what I want uh, all of us to hear today, all right? All of us are in homes, and if you happen to be a mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, then this, uh, you need to hear the Lord's instruction to you today, and it is that we would love him with everything that we are, with all that we have, and that we would teach our children to do the same. So let's go ahead and we'll start looking at these first three verses and just read those again uh, for background. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey." So we need to get the context here. Where are these verses coming out of? We don't want to just rip um, some verses out of the Bible and make them mean whatever we want them to mean. So there's something that's going on here in the history of God's people. We're reading from the book of Deuteronomy. This is the uh, the last book in the Pentateuch, um, the, the fifth book of Moses. And this is a very important book in the Old Testament. And here's what's happening. 
at this point, Moses is really giving his very last speech to the people of Israel. He's about to die. The Lord has told them that he is not going to go into the land uh, of Canaan. He's not going to see the promised land. He's not going to go over with God's people. So he's about to die, and he's got the people of Israel assembled together in the plains of Moab. They're just about to go over the Jordan uh, under the leadership of Joshua. Things are about to change. Moses is going to die. The uh, leadership of the people of Israel are going to pass on to Joshua. Joshua is going to take God's people into the conquest of the land and possess it as has been promised. But, you know, if you think about final words, you know, we know somebody might be on his deathbed and these are his final words, then you should really perk up. These are really important things. You really want to zone in and listen to what he has to say. And so Moses, the faithful leader of God's people for the past 40 years, is now uh, giving these final words to God's people. And so we should definitely want to hear what he has to say. This is important stuff. And the importance of all this is when we understand the word Deuteronomy, it simply just means that this is the second giving of the law. So 40 years prior, at the base of, the Mount, of, of Mount Sinai, after God had miraculously delivered his people out of Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, brought God's people there to the base of the mountain at Mount Sinai. And there we see God um, speaking from heaven. We see uh, the mountain there smoking in fire, God speaking to his people there. It's, it's a pretty formidable thing that you see in Exodus chapter 19, but God is a, revealing himself to his people there, that they might fear him, that they would hear his voice, though they would not see him physically, but they, they would hear from him and they would fear him rightly and take his words and believe them and so obey them. The significance of this is that God's people are to be a different people, set apart from all the other nations of the earth, that they are to know him and, uh, and, and as God himself is holy, they are to be like him in that way, to be holy and set apart and separate from all the other nations that are around them. Well, 40 years earlier, uh, here we see God's people in Kadesh Barnea, and they're, they're about to go into the land of Canaan 40 years earlier and to take possession of it as the Lord had commanded them. But before God's people say, hey, let's go ahead and do what God said, can we just go ahead and take some, uh, some spies, one from each of our tribes, and send them over and just kind of search out the land and see what it looks like and if it really is you know, everything God said it was? And, and so they do that. It sounds like a great idea. They send the spies over there, and they come back, and they come back with a good report that, yeah, the land really is outstanding. Look at the produce of the land. It's amazing. Everything that we've seen is what God said it is, but there's some really big people there. They're like giants, and we would be like grasshoppers in their eyes. And so the report that they brought back really disheartened God's people, and it caused them to to lack faith and trust that God would go before them and would fight for them as he had promised. And so they did not do as God said. They refused to go into the land of Canaan. And God, out of his anger, in that moment said, this generation, all those who are 20 years and up, men of war, would never enter, the, uh, enter into the promised land. He'd made that promise. Not one person of this generation besides Caleb and Joshua would go in to see the land of promise. And so 40 years, they would wander in the wilderness until every person of that generation had died off, as God said. Well, now we find ourselves 40 years later, and they're on the plains of Moab, about to go in once again into the land of Canaan. So that's what we mean here by the second giving of the law. Moses is calling God's people, the next generation, those some who have seen and some who had heard, but they were much younger. They were children at the time. And he's reminding them of the faithfulness of God, the things that he had done in their past to bring them to, to, bring them to where they are to this day and to encourage their hearts and to strengthen them before they were to go in and take, take the land. And so he is to remind them of the law that God has given them that was really condensed in the Ten Commandments. We see that again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where he gives those Ten Commandments yet again. And the rest, really, of Deuteronomy is, an, um, is expounding upon those commandments, what that actually means to live those things out. So that's the significance here, historically, of what's going on at this point in Israel's history. Now, the land that they're about to possess when they go in, this is a land that had been, um, it's polluted land. It's polluted in the sense that the nations and the people who live there, they do not know the one true and living God. They do not know Yahweh. They serve idols. They serve false gods, uh, false worship. They do abominable practices, all these kinds of things that they did. And that's what the land was full of. And so God's people were going to go in, and they were to clear the land of all of that. But even once they were to finally take in the land, there were still surrounding nations who also served false gods, the Baals and the Ashtarim and all these other false gods. And they had false, uh, crazy worship practices. And so 
it would be very important that when God's people go into the land, that they would do as God told them to do, to walk as God told them to walk, to know him as he has revealed himself and to live according to his laws and to live according to his commands. It would not be easy when they would go in to dispossess the, the nations who live there, they would also have to resist all of their idolatrous, idolatrous influences. Those that were set up everywhere in the land, there's going to be um, all these altars that were set up, there are going to be pillars, all these things used for false worship, and they were to, to tear them down. All the idols that they would see, they were to burn in the fire, all these things that might tempt them and turn their heart away from worshiping and serving the one true and living God to serving the idols that were around them. So this was a big deal. So how were they, once they entered the land, how were they to stand strong? How were they to remain obedient to the Lord and to resist all those influences? And this is important because when we live today, we live in a land that's really no, no different than that, right? I mean, everywhere we go, there are false gods crying for our attention and for the attention of our children. And you know, we don't even have to teach that. It's being fed to our kids one way or another, somehow, some way. The culture and the things that our culture values, the gods of our culture are, you know, are being fed to us everywhere. You can try to protect your kids all you want, but it's going, the enemy has a way of getting his message across one way or another. So what do we do? We can't just always protect, 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 isolate, isolate, isolate. What do we do when we're finding that you know, we're in a world that's full of um, competing gods, competing idols, demanding our worship and demanding that of our children as well. And that's really what I believe this text is going to speak to. So the message is really simply titled, The Gospel-Centered Home. Now, when we turn to verse 4, this is where we start getting our commands. So let's continue to read from God's Word here in verse 4 through verse 6. This, so how are, how are God's people, once they entered the Promised Land, how are they going to resist the idolatrous influences and live for God? It starts with a heart for God. And that's what we see in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, these verses are called the Shema. You may have heard that before. It basically is the, the Hebrew word for the first word in verse 4, hear. And it is, yeah, we're to hear what God's saying, but hear with the understanding of heed. Don't just hear it and let it go in one ear and out the other. But when you hear this, hear it, take note of it, and listen to it and do it. Heed God's word. So hear and heed the Lord our God. The Lord here in the Bible is all capitals. And so when you see all capitals, this is the divine name of God, the personal name of God that he revealed to his people. Uh, in particular, he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is his name where he says, I am that I am. And we know this name to be, or we say Yahweh or Jehovah. And so hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. And this is an extremely, this is like the heart of their theology, right? It, yes, it teaches monotheism, but it teaches so much more than that. What it's really saying is that we can't, we, we can't possibly understand how we're going to live in a nation with all these other gods and, and fight them unless we understand there is only one God. Only one God exists, and only one God, therefore, demands our worship and our obedience and our lives. And so, this Yahweh, the great I am, the eternally self-existent one, your God, the one who disclosed himself to you at the mountain in Exodus 19, the one that was burning with fire, wrapped in darkness and cloud and great gloom, and he entered into a covenant with you so that he would be your God and you would be his people. This God is the one and only God. When it says that he is one, it means that he is unique. He is one of a kind. There is no other like him and there is no other God besides him. So, Israel, get this right. Church family, get this right. There is only one God. Now, the world may say there are multiple gods, and they may go after multiple gods and give their hearts to them, but in all reality, there is only one true and living God. All the other gods are man-made gods. They cannot hear. They cannot speak. They cannot uh, think. They cannot see. They cannot do anything. We see over and over, in particular throughout the Old Testament, the impotence of the gods of the nations that are around them. They cannot do anything. But there is one God who has demonstrated himself in might and power, in particular to this people, 
The people of Israel, when they were slaves in a foreign land under, uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt for over 400 years, this God made himself known to them. This God stepped in and rescued them. This is the one and true and living God. He is the only one. So if we turn back just a couple pages in our Bible to Deuteronomy 4, this is what God says. This is how we should understand what God is commanding us to do. He says in verse 32, Deuteronomy 4, 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another, from another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. And so God has made it very clear that he alone is God and he is their God and he had entered into a special covenant relationship with them Think about this in our case in the same way. Consider the sovereign grace of God and the way that he revealed himself to them while they were slaves in Egypt. He revealed himself to them. He chose to rescue them. He set his affection on them and loved them. Why? Because God gets to do what God wants to do. God set his affection and his love on these people and he rescued them, not because they deserved it, but because God in his goodwill and in his grace chose to do it and then called them into specific, special relationship with himself. This is what God has done for us as well. When we consider the sovereign grace of God and how he has revealed himself to us, that when we hear the words of God from the Bible, we don't just hear them, but that we believe them, that something in us burns within us, that we know that these words, in fact, are true, and that God has revealed himself on the pages of Scripture, that God has revealed himself in particular in the face and person of Jesus Christ, his Son, God incarnate, who walked on the earth. And when we know this, not just as information or facts, but then when we really believe this, God has turned our hearts on. He has awakened us to the truth of who he is. He has, he has come for us. He has rescued us. He has done so through the work of Jesus. We too were slaves. We were slaves not to Pharaoh, but to an even, uh, even more wicked and sinister thing called sin. We were slaves to sin, and we could not free ourselves. In fact, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could do nothing to free ourselves and make us right with God. So God came and rescued us. God sent his son to deliver us. God uh, sent Jesus Jesus wrapped himself in flesh, lived a sinless life, came after us, and died in our place at the cross, received the punishment we deserve, and was raised to life on the third day. This was all due to the sovereign grace of God and nothing else. He did this to reveal himself, to choose to rescue us from slavery, and he adopted us as his sons and his daughters. So when we consider what God has done, then the next thing we consider is what does this one and only gracious and merciful God expect and demand from us, right? The Bible says that we, we weren't seeking God, but God sought us. God loved us, and God saved us. Now, what does, what does he expect and demand of us after he has showed us such great grace? Verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. We shall love him with everything that we are, and with all that we have. Like, we hold nothing back. The full, complete, total, totality of who we are, 
Everything that we are, everything that we have, we are to love God. That's what God expects, and that's what God demands of us. That's, that's what we do after God has so loved us. Our love and our obedience to God is in response to God's first loving us, God's first rescuing us, God first delivering us. So all of our love, all of our obedience to him is our response to his grace and his kindness to us. Now, when we hear this command, it can seem really overwhelming. Because when we think that this is the command that Jesus later tells us in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30, you know, man asked him, so Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? And he says, well, the greatest commandment, and he refers to this word right here, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment, he says. We hear this, and it can be overwhelming. Yes, God demands and deserves our love, but we do not love him as we ought. We have not loved him with everything we are. We do not love him passionately as he deserves. We withhold from him a lot of our affection and our obedience. Praise God that in Jesus Christ, our representative, he perfectly loved the Father for us and in our place. He perfectly obeyed the laws of God, completely from his heart. The motive and the intent of the law, he did so for all who would put their faith in him. Praise God for that. Now, when we love the Lord, though our love is going to be imperfect, though our love should always be growing and progressive, but yet we will never fully love the Lord as we, um, as we ought and as the command is given to us with all of our heart and with all that we are. Nevertheless, when we grow in love for the Lord, we will love his word. We will have a special place for his word. This God that we love is a God who wants to be known. This God who wants to be known has spoken to us and given us his words and recorded them for us in, his, in the Bible. This is huge. So it's, it's, it's important as it is that we hear God speak, how much more important is that they are written down for us to come back to over and over and over again. I'm not the best at hearing. I will hear and forget, but if I can keep coming back to the Bible, keep seeing his words written on the page, this is such a gift. So the more that we love God, the more that we will cherish and treasure and value his word and his words We will love the scriptures. And that's exactly what we read in verse six. Verse five was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, the Bible, God's words, the scriptures, God's commands, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, they need to get off of the stone that God wrote the commandments on the stones that Moses, you know, the stone tablets that Moses brought down from, from the mountain. They need to get off of those stones and into our hearts. And this is also a work of what Christ has done in the new covenant, where Jeremiah refers to it in chapter 31, that he will write his law on our hearts, right? We need that work of God on the inner part of our hearts to impress, engrave his word on our hearts. So the more that we love God, the more we'll cherish and value his word. And the more that we cherish and value his word, the more that we'll spend time in it to know God and to understand what he desires from us to do. When it says that his, word shall, um, that his commands and his word shall be on our heart, it brings to mind Psalm 119, verse 11, that I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. I love you, Lord, and I love your word, and I have hidden it in my heart. I have stored it up so that I might not sin against you. When tempted, your word is there to encourage me to love you more than this sin. I have hidden your word in my heart. I need your word in those moments. I have hidden it there. I have memorized it. And then Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. When you love the Lord and you have his word, you don't just read it. You don't just listen to it, but you, you, just, you study it. You dwell on it. You think about it. You try to pull all the meaning you can out of it. You want to understand what is God's word and his intent and how you might live according to it. It's your joy. It is your delight. It is your meditation all the day. That's how God's word gets into your heart and is impressed upon your heart. 
And the only way that works, see, love, we think of love as just this squishy thing, just a feeling. And I, I feel just kind of this emotion, and that's great. And I'm glad that God has given us emotions. And yes, we can express love when that happens, and it feels good. But love is so much deeper than that. Love involves a commitment, an act of our will. And all throughout the scripture, all throughout, the Bible says when we love God that we will obey his commands. You cannot divorce the two. To love God is to obey his commands. You don't say, well, I love God, but I'm not feeling this today. You know? Look over and over again, Jesus in his word. In John 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments, Jesus says, and keeps them, he, it is, who loves me. Two verses later, John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then John, 1 John 5, 3, he says, for this is love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I don't know, when you hear that, how does that strike you? God's commandments, there's a lot of them. Sometimes they just seem, man, it's so hard when the Bible says, if you love God, you're going to keep his commandments. Oh, but his commandments are not that burdensome. Is that how you understand God's commands? Or do they feel like a weight? Do they feel like a burden? Or do you see them and receive them from God as a gift? God, thank you for lighting my way. Thank you for giving me the path, showing me what is in accordance with your good, holy, uh, your good and holy nature and your will. See, if God is showing us how to love him and he gives us commands and you do love the Lord, to obey his command is the, is the most natural way to love God. And so if you love the Lord, it would be your delight, your pleasure to honor him by obeying his commands. So every time you're faced with temptation, it's only, tempta- it's only tempting to you if somehow there's a desire in you that sort of wants that. But if you know that that desire is evil, that doesn't please the Lord, and God has expressly given a command against that, when you're tempted to give in, you have a choice to make, don't you? This is where love shows up as an act of the will. What do you love more? Do you love this sin? Do you love what that makes you feel? Or do you love more God and his word and his commands and pleasing him? Every time you are faced with a temptation to sin is always an opportunity to prove that you love God more always, in every case. So when God gives this command, they're about to go enter this land, and there's going to be, it's polluted with all kinds of false gods and idols and false worship, and all the nations surrounding them have their own gods. God's saying, when you go in there, you need to know I'm the only God, and this is who I am. I have delivered you. I have rescued you. I have made you my own people, and all I'm asking you is to love me in return, and these commands that I give you are showing you how to love me. This is how you love me. It's not just a feeling. Love me because this is consistent with who I am. This is consistent with my holy character. This is my will for you. And so when you hear God's commandments, they can be for you. God, thank you for those. Yes, my sin. Yes, I have these evil desires that still live within me, and it makes me want to, to do this. But God, I love you more. Give me grace to love you and to cast off this sin. In that sense, his commandments are not burdensome when you know that you can please the Lord and love the Lord by your obedience. What does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, mom, dad, how are you loving God? How well are you right now at this very moment loving the Lord your God? Do you joyfully, do you willfully obey his commands? Do you spend time daily in his word, reading his word, letting God speak to you, hiding his word in your heart, memorizing it, meditating on it, dwelling upon it so you can get the full meaning and intention and understanding of God's word so that you might obey him in it? Do you talk to God in prayer? Do you delight in his presence? Do you enjoy just being with him, your heavenly father? Question, do your kids see that? Do they see that? Do they see you early in the morning before you start for work? Do they see you with your Bible open? Do they see you on your knees in prayer? Do they see that? And do they see you faithfully obeying the Lord when it hurts, when it's hard, when it's costly, 
when it requires sacrifice, do they see that? Now, I know we've mentioned already, we will not perfectly obey God. We don't love God perfectly as we ought. But when you sin against him, it's not if you sin, but when you sin against him, do you grieve over your sin? You know that the Holy Spirit that dwells in you is grieved over your sin. Do you grieve with him over your sin? Do you agree with God that your sin is indeed sin and it is offensive to God and it deserves his judgment? And do you quickly humble yourself and repent and turn to God, confessing your sin? Do your kids see that? Because you're not perfect. None of us in this room are. Do they see you desiring to know the Lord, to know his word, to follow him in obedience, and that when you stumble, stumble, not if, but when you stumble, when you fall, when you fail, do they see you grieve over your sin and humble yourself and repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness? Do they see you doing that? Well, why am I asking this? Why is it so important that we love God with all that we are and with all that we have? And why is it important that we do so in front of our children? Church, we cannot impart to our children which for, what first isn't a part of our own lives. According to verses 7 through 9 in Deuteronomy 6, parents, parents are the responsible, ones who are responsible for teaching their children to love God in the same way. The thing is, our kids are experts at being able to sniff out hypocrisy, aren't they? They're experts in not just hearing what we say, but seeing what we do and saying those don't match up. And so it doesn't always matter what we say. If what we do, we're really saying that's more important. That's, see, kids are excellent at spotting hypocrisy and learning what's really important by our own examples. And that's what leads us to the second part of the message. The first part is simple. What does God expect of us? To love him with all that we are and with all that we have. And secondly, to teach our kids to love him as well. That's where we are in verses 7 through 9. So let's continue. Verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children. The them means God's commands, God's word. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, I know that we're reading from the Old Testament this morning. You might think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing, you know, but no, it's a New Testament thing as well. The responsibility and the role of fathers and mothers to stand up and take the leadership in their home to train their children. In particular, the New Testament counterpart would be Ephesians 6 verse 4. It says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the New Testament counterpart to what we're reading this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So this is consistent throughout the full counsel of God. It's not like something changed when Jesus came, and now, oh, now it's the pastor's job to train my children. Now it's the children's ministry, or their, their Sunday school teacher, or it's going to be Jonathan and Kayla and our youth ministry, or fill in the blank, or we go to a Christian school, and it's going to be our teacher's responsibility. Or, no, nothing changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The primary, the primary people that God... Uh, lays the responsibility for discipleship of your children or as on parents. It's on parents. Old Testament, New Testament. It's on parents. Parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. They are the one charged by God to teach their children about him, to teach him about his nature, his character, and his ways. They are charged with teaching their kids God's commands, how to obey them, how to follow Christ. Now, why would God do that? Parents, we often think, man, I, don't, don't look at me. There's, there, are, there are professionals at this, and I'm not one of them. But God in his wisdom, who designed family, who designed mothers and designed fathers and designed children, in his wisdom, believe it or not, God has uniquely designed parents to be the best at discipling and teaching their children. Now, it may not make sense to you, but who are they with more than anyone else? In what environment are they in more than any other environment? Your home. That's the primary teaching 
environment your kids have. You can send them to school, you can send them to camp, you can send them to church, but those are only a few hours a day. The, the, the primary and the, amount, the most amount of time your kids have are in your home. That environment, that little culture is what is shaping them and teaching them. And so God in his wisdom has given this role of discipleship making of our kids to our parents. Now, the reason is that parents have unparalleled influence in the life of their kids. Unparalleled. No one else will have a stronger influence on your son or your daughter than you, mom or dad. And you may not think so. Maybe as your kids get older and they become teenagers and you think they're not listening to you anymore. That's not all true. They may give that. They may put that off you know, and give that, uh, that idea to you. But as a mom or a dad, your influence is always there. It never dissipates. Your influence always remains for good or for bad. And so what our kids need most are examples, our models. And you know what God gave them? Us. And he put the example, he put the model in their home. Not somewhere else, but in their home. It is God's plan, mom and dad, that we teach and show our kids what loving God looks like. That's why verse 5 and 6 came before verses 7 through 9. We have to love God with all that we are and all that we have. We have to so, you know, hide his word in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against him, that, that we treasure God's word and we seek to live according to God's ways so that we can model it to our kids. We teach our children how to love God by loving God in front of them. That's how we do it. And then verse 7 it says to teach them diligently to your children. We're already teaching by modeling, but now there's another kind of teaching. After we've demonstrated lifestyle in front of them, what it looks like to love and honor and trust God and to pursue God and to seek, seek obedience to him, now we teach diligently to our children. The word teach diligently in the, new, in the New International Version, they use the word impress. And I really like that word, to impress these commands, to impress God's words on your children. And it also has another meaning of like engrave, to engrave God's word, to engrave the gospel on the hearts of your children so it's there, that it's a mark that remains. And how do we do that? This teaching diligently, this impressing, this engraving God's word, it, it has this idea of repeating something over and over and over again. And so there's a consistency. It's not like, well, I told you once, you should have got it. Don't we see over and over in God's word how God reinforces things over and over and over again in our life to teach us the same thing? And we, as parents in our home, need to teach diligently our children and repeat the same things over and over and over again to remind them of God's love, to remind them of God's, um, God's grace, to remind them of God's mercy, his forgiveness, to remind them of all these things, to apply the gospel over and over and over again. So when we teach diligently, it implies intentionality and formal instruction. To teach diligently means you've thought about this. You are intentional about it. It doesn't just sort of happen by mistake. That you have an intentional plan, that you are thinking about this. How can I pass on the gospel to my children? How can I pass on faithfulness to God to my children? Well, I want to give some, um, some, practical, some practical suggestions one of the ways that you can do this intentionally with some kind of formal instruction is something called family worship. And it's, it's something that has been around in the church for so many centuries, and it's, it seems like it's becoming more and more aware of, again, in our culture. And I'm grateful for that in the church in our age. But basically, family worship is just saying, you know what, 15, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, when our family is together at home, we're going to spend time as a family opening God's word, reading from it, talking about what we've read, praying and asking the Lord you know, to help us to live according to his word, to pray for one another, and to sing to the Lord because he is worthy. We don't just sing to the Lord when we come to church because you know, God is worthy of our, of our worship and our song everywhere. And so we can even bring a song into our home. And you don't have to be a great singer to do it. You just sing. Family worship involves just those three little things. 
as a family, 10 or 15 minutes set apart. Somehow, every family's structure looks different. When we would start practicing family worship when our children were little, we'd do it right before bedtime. It made the most sense. There was a routine. Our kids would get a shower, and then after shower, we would get together in the upstairs den, and we'd all sit on the couch, and we'd open our Bibles. And in that time, we were doing a lot of the children's Bibles, and they were, you know, we were reading a lot of those things together and helping them get the grand story of, of, of redemption uh, and, and uh, God's Word in, in that way. We would pray together as a family. We would sing together as a family. And we would do that when they were young, and it just worked in our family after bath time, right before bed. Well, as kids get older and things change, it looks a little bit different for our family now. Right now, it's usually at dinner table. We clear the, we, we, we clear the, um, the plates, and we go ahead and move into the living room. And our girls may have a lot of other things to do. They may need to get their shower, may do their homework, but they have in, it's ingrained in them. Okay, we, we stay downstairs. Dinner might be over, but we're not done downstairs. We just kind of move over into the living room. And together, we all pick up our Bibles and we all start, whatever, you know, we just finished reading the book of Acts. We just, and then after that, the book of Jonah, we go Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth so that we can hear the full counsel of God's word. And we just read a chapter a day. We'll read a chapter a day and we'll all take times reading a paragraph. And then we'll just ask some questions about what is, what's God's word saying? What is God telling us about himself? What are we learning about ourselves? What are we to do with this? And how can we help one another to be faithful to God and obeying his commands? We'll pray. We used to sing. We should probably do that some more. They're not as, they're, it's a little bit more awkward for them as they've gotten older. But, but we, that's family worship, what it looks like in our home. It's not, you know, it's not sexy. It's just, it is what it is. We spend time together hearing from the Lord together, discussing his word together, and praying for one another that we'd be faithful and obedient to his word. So that's one way that you can intentionally and diligently teach God's word to your children. I encourage that. Now, does it happen every single night? Not every single night are we all together at home. We're all running. But as often as we are all together at home, we will spend time together in God's word. It's a means of God's grace. It's one of the ways that God has said through his word and through prayer that God moves in the hearts of his people. Why would we not pick that up and do that in our homes? Another way maybe that's, that we can intentionally um, give some formal instruction is through Bible study. Like when we really get into a particular topic and we want to know what the word says about this, or maybe there's a book that we want to read together as a family about something, then that's important. That's intentional discipleship. Catechesis, that's not probably a word we hear a whole lot, but it basically catechesis is um, it's a verbal instruction, which it, it takes place by a, a question and answer format. It's the way that the church for in, in century, throughout the centuries have learned to pass on the faith from one generation to the next. They've come up with a great series of questions and answers to teach their kids about who God is and what God demands and expects of us and how we can live for God. And so another great way that I would encourage that we can teach uh, intentionally and teach diligently God's word to our families and our children is through catechesis, uh, question and answer format. I brought a couple of them with me this morning. Um, they're called Truth and Grace Memory Books. Um, there's three of them. The first one, I think, is for ages two through like fourth or fifth grade. The second one's like age uh, grades four through eight. And then the third one is for high school. And it gets progressively more difficult. Um, but like for the very first one, when our kids were just two years old, these were some of the questions that they would be asked. Who made you? And they would learn their answer was, God made me. All right, well, what else did God make? Their answer, God made all things. Well, why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Well, how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Well, why ought you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. Are there more gods than one? There is only one God. And it just goes a question and answer format and you're passing on the faith. And you would know we're talking about we're to impress God's commands upon our children, to teach them diligently, to impress, to engrave. When your kids are young, they're very impressionable and they're able to learn like a sponge and these things seep into them. We can remember times when our girls were just talking and a question came up 
It wasn't, you know, just what, and just regular conversation. And they had an answer and it was just like right there because God made me, you know, it, they, they had God's word already learned in this, this catechism already a part of them. And so in an answer, they just spoke what they had learned, what they had memorized. What a, a huge, hugely um, important way to pass on our faith. And it gets more difficult with uh, the second and the third books. One is uh, a Baptist version of the Westminster um, uh, Catechism and then the Heidelberg Catechism. So really good stuff there to pass that on to your kids. Um, and then milestones, another intentional way you can uh, pass on God's word through milestones and rite of passage weekends, events like a purity weekend or maybe a biblical manhood or womanhood uh, retreat where you take your son or your daughter away for a special time, maybe when they're becoming uh, about to become an adolescent and things are changing in their body or all these kinds of things or they're starting to think about you know purity and what that looks like and think about what does it mean to be a man as God defines manhood? What does it mean to be a woman as God defines womanhood? What does it look like for me to think about maybe getting married one day and what should, you know those kinds of things, being intentional about those things. You teach them diligently to your children. Well, when do you talk about them? Well, you continue with verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise all the time. When do you talk about these things? All the time. Take advantage of God moments that happen that you cannot script. You don't know when they're going to happen, but they happen. So be on alert. A God moment. Maybe when you're sitting down. When do you sit down together as a family? Well, maybe when you're sitting down at the dinner table. Talk about the Lord and his word when you're there at the table. Talk about your day and the things that have happened and all the ways that you might be able to bring the gospel to bear on any of the events that happened that day. When's another time you might sit together as a family? Well, what happens when you sit in front of a TV or a movie? Don't just turn off your brains. Everything you're watching has some kind of message that they're trying to, to, to send, all right? Now, yes, you can be entertained. Yes, you can have fun watching, but sometimes don't, the word amusement means without thought. You don't ever want to engage in entertainment and turn off your brain. You want to make sure as parents that everything you're watching, everything that you're doing together as a family is a teaching moment as well. What does God's word have to say about that? Well, is that true? What is that, you know? It's amazing how even those, those little Disney movies that have all kinds of uh, you know, pretty animated cartoon characters, how there are some messages in them that are so anti the Bible and anti-God. And we just need, I'm not saying ne don't necessarily not watch them, but I'm saying as you do watch them with your kids, point it out. Talk about what is God's word. You're teaching them how to engage a biblical worldview with the competing worldviews all that are around us. You're helping them to think biblically. You're training them in this way. You're teaching them, but you're doing it together. All right, when it says that you're walking down the way, we don't do a whole lot of walking anymore, but we pop in our cars. And whenever we're going from point A to point B, use those opportunities, use those moments. Maybe the things you're listening to, the music you're listening to, maybe podcasts, or maybe you don't listen to anything at all and you just have conversations and you have little questions that you ask, whatever it might be, use those moments intentionally while you have your kids in the back of the seat and they can't go anywhere and make sure they don't have a device in their hand and they have something in their ears, right? So you can engage together as a family in the car. At bedtime, it's another time. He says, and when, um, and these words, you should teach them diligently your children, talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's another great time to apply God's word at the end of a day. At the end of a day. And something that Rachel and I had done for a long time was uh, just giving our girls a simple blessing before they went to sleep at night. And a lot of times I would use the blessing that God gave to Aaron in the numbers. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Just a blessing of God's word over them as they slept to remind them that they're in God's care. And then when you start a new day, when they rise, God, it's a new day. What are we supposed to do in this? And I love this short prayer by John Stott to start the new day. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A prayer that you can pray for yourself and for your children as each new day begins. In verses 8 through 9, 
He says, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, the them, God's word, God's commands. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, the Jews actually um, took these verses uh, pretty literally. And uh, they had something called phylacteries. They had like a little box and they would tie it around their arm and it would be on their hands. And inside the little box would be the Shema, these verses right here from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your right? They would have that on them. They took these words very literally. Or they would have a mezuzah where something would be over the top of their doorpost. And again, God's word and scriptures would be in those. You know, I don't, I don't know that we're necessarily intended to take them literally, but I think we can take them metaphorically. What are we supposed to do with God's word when he talks about, you know, to bind it on our hands and that it should be as a sign between our eyes? Well, that God's word should be close at hand. We should seek to apply it. We should seek to, um, to put it into action, put it into motion. You know, when we think about it between our eyes, this, that we would see things through God's eyes, that we would be aware of the things that God brings our way in the ways that we might be able to obey him today. So that, again, what we're thinking of here, that we would carry God's word with us wherever we go, with the intent to do it and honor Christ, that we'd be quick to do them and, uh, and obey them. And then he uses this in verse 9 about you shall write God's word on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And in some way, um, I think it doesn't hurt that our homes have visual reminders that our home belongs to the Lord, that we are the Lord's, that he is Lord over our home and over our family. Do you have pictures um, do you have scripture? Do you have little knickknacks? Anything like just things all throughout the house that define that we are the Lord's. I know throughout our home, there are a number of different places in our home. We just have scriptures on signs or, you know, verses from um, some of the, the hymns that we sing together. Um, or even a picture of um, Jesus as the good shepherd. Any of those kinds of things. A picture of Jesus as, uh, or the parable of the... Um, uh, of the prodigal son, any of those things that are just throughout our home as visual reminders that we belong to the Lord and, his Lord and the Lord rules our home and we want to honor him in that. And so I think there's just ways that, you know, that we can do that to reinforce that even in our homes. Well, in all of this, um, it's likely as we lead our homes in this, as we seek to love the Lord with all we are and all we have and to teach our children to do the same, that at some point, our kids might ask a question, why do we do this? And why don't we do what all the other families do? And why do we do this? Nobody else does that. You know, they're going to ask those kinds of questions. And, and that's good because we should, in some sense, be peculiar to the culture that we live in. We, this is not our home. We belong to the Lord. And so we are going to look different as God's people or we ought to look different as God's people in the way that we operate as a family. Well, when we stand out and our kids ask these kinds of questions, look in Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? That's like, you know, green light and go. Here we go. What does he say? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So every time as you operate under the Lord's leadership and you look very different from the families next door to you and the culture at large and your kids ask you why, are you ready to give them the answer? Are you ready to tell them the story of your redemption in Christ, the work that Christ has done, that he has graciously rescued you, that he has loved you, that he has saved you? I think the New Testament equivalent of this would be a perfect example from Ephesians 2. Listen to this as an answer when your kids ask you, why do we do this? Why do my friends say, I can't do that? Why? 
Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you, you, or, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world. This is our story, right? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us, us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, we've been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of our works. We can't boast. But son and daughter, we are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why we're different. That's how we love the Lord and seek to teach our children to do the same. Five quick action points that just come from our sermon. Number one, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, grow in your love for the Lord by meditating on God's love for you in Christ. We cannot teach our children to love the Lord if we don't love him first. And the only way you're gonna grow in your love for the Lord is to meditate on his love displayed for you in the cross, in the gospel, what Christ has done for you and rescuing you of your sins from what you deserve. Meditate on that, dwell on that, realize that you don't deserve what he has done for you, but receive it and let God's love wash over you and turn your heart in praise to him. So grow in your love for the Lord. And the way you do that is you meditate on the gospel of Christ. Number two, Model genuine repentance for sin and abiding in Christ. Model it. When you sin and you do and your kids see you, model what it looks like to turn from that sin, to repent of that sin and seek the forgiveness of God and be restored to him in fellowship. And model them what it looks like to seek to obey him and follow in his steps. Number three, Read and discuss the Bible daily during family worship in the home. Make that a commitment. Somehow, some way, set apart some time in your day as a family, 10 or 15 minutes to read the Bible, to talk about what you've read, and worship the Lord in your home. Number four, capitalize on God moments when they occur. And they will. When they occur, applying the gospel to each situation, things that you cannot expect, things that you don't know that are going to happen, but when they do, use that moment to teach and bring the gospel to bear. Discipline is one of those perfect moments for that. When we have to discipline our kids, that's an opportunity to talk about the heart and how all of us have sinned against God and how God in his grace has made it possible through Christ to be forgiven and to be restored. How many ways that we can repeat over and over again to impress and to engrave on the hearts of our children God's word and the goodness of his love for us. Capitalize on those God moments when they occur, applying the gospel to each situation. And number five, pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would use your flawed and feeble efforts to stir your children's affection for Christ. It has to be the work of God in the heart of our children. Parents, I know you know that. There's only so much we can do. We are to model a love for Christ and we are to teach our children diligently. But ultimately speaking, it is the Lord's work to turn a child's heart to himself. But God is pleased often and often to use the works of, their, of, of the parents in the home. And he has given us these commands. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this Father's Day. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you've given us to love you with all that we are and all that we have, to model that love to our children and to teach them how to love you in return. God, I pray that you would encourage us, those of us in this room today that needed to be reminded of that, I pray that you would, um, God, just encourage us in areas maybe where we uh, just needed to be reminded and uh, encouraged. 
God, I pray not for condemnation on anyone that should hear these words today, but just that they would think, you know, I haven't been doing all that I should in these ways. I have not, maybe as a parent, or as a father or a mother, been leading my home in the way that I should. God, would you help them just to stay to confess that to you, to repent of that, and to begin this day, this very day, to start taking up their mantle as the primary disciple makers in their home. God, would you give them the grace to do that? Would you give them the patience to do that? Would they believe for the long haul that you will use their efforts to bring about fruit in the lives of their children? We need you, God. We need your gospel. And I pray that you would cause us to depend, to depend on you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.